Chapter 4, Part 4 of the Works of Robert G. Ingersoll, Volume 10, Ingersoll's Closing Address to the Jury in the Second Star Root Trial. Part 4 of 24. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by William Jones. Part 4. Closing Address to the Jury in the Second Star Root Trial. There is one little piece of testimony to which I failed to call your attention on Friday, and to which I will call your attention now. Moore was a friend of Boone. Boone recommended him to Minor. It was through Boone that Moore was employed. Now, I ask you if it is not wonderful that Moore never told Boone that there was a conspiracy on foot? Is it not wonderful that Moore did not tell Boone, his friend, the man to whom he was indebted for the employment? There is a conspiracy in this case. Senator Dorsey, as good as told me so, I know all about it. The fact is, he never said one word, and the reason we know it is that Boone swears that when he went out on the 7th or 8th of August, he never even suspected it. I cannot, it seems to me, make this point too plain. Boone had been known by Dorsey for a long time. They were very good friends. Dorsey had enough confidence in him to select him as the man to get the necessary information after he had been requested to do so in the letter. Boone was the man who attended to this business more than anybody else. Boone was interested with John W. Dorsey. Boone had every reason to find out exactly what was happening. He was at Dorsey's house, where Minor was. He talked with Minor day after day. He helped get up the bids. He did a great deal of mechanical work. He had the subcontracts printed. Yet during all that time Dorsey never let fall a chance expression that gave Boone even the dimmest dawn of a hint that there was a conspiracy. No one told Boone. More his friend never spoke of it. Now there is one other point with regard to Mr. Moore. Mr. Moore swears on page 1371 that Minor offered him a fourth interest in these roots. That was the conversation in which Moore said Mr. Minor told him they were good affidavit men. According to Moore's testimony, he then knew there was a conspiracy, and he understood that he was part and parcel of it. Let me ask you right here. Is it probable that Moore would have been offered a quarter interest at that time if a conspiracy existed, and if they had their plans laid to make hundreds of thousands of dollars? And if the profits had depended upon the affidavits alone, I ask you, as sensible, reasonable men, if he would have been offered a quarter interest under those circumstances. Now comes in what I believe to be the falsehood. Mr. Moore says that the interest was offered to him by Minor, but Minor said it would have to be ratified by Stephen W. Dorsey. That is brought in for the purpose of having some evidence against Dorsey. You must recollect, gentlemen, that this evidence was all purchased. The evidence was all bargained for in the open shamble. 
you must recollect that there are upon the records of this court some seven or ten indictments against a e boone you must remember that moore was boone's friend you must remember that moore was a part of the consideration that boone was giving to the government for immunity mr merrick is there any proof of that mr ingersoll i think there is mr moore swears as to the number of indictments against boone he was his friend the jury have a right to infer what motive prompts a witness moore witnessed to swear enough so that mr boone would not be troubled in my judgment mr boone being under indictment gave evidence in this case in order that the government would take its clutch from his throat he swore under pressure that is a system gentlemen that is dangerous in any country whenever a government advertises for witnesses whenever a government says to a guilty man or to a man who is indicted all we ask of you is to help us convict somebody else whenever they advertise for a villain they get him that is the result of what they call the informer system an infamous system a court of justice where justice is done between man and man is the holiest place on earth the informer system turns that into a den into a cavern into a dungeon where crawl the slimy monsters of perjury and treachery that is the informer system it makes a court a den of wild beasts what else does it do under its brood and hatch come spies spies to watch witnesses spies to watch counsel spies to follow jurymen so that a juror cannot leave his house without the shadow of the spy falling upon his doorstep that is not the proper attitude of government the business of a government is to protect its citizens not to spread nets the business of government is to throw its shield of power in front of the rights of every citizen i hold an utter infinite and absolute contempt any government that calls for informers and spies every trial should be in the free air all the work should be done openly these sinister motions in the dark the crawling of these abnormal and slimy things i abhor now to come back to more upon my word i think he was trying to help his friend after mr minor had offered him a quarter interest then he came back to washington he arrived here according to his evidence about the eleventh day of july i think he went immediately to see stephen w dorsey recollect that this was the time dorsey settled with him without looking at his books after he settled with him and gave him two hundred and fifty dollars he asked him to telegraph to see if the service had been put on the dallas and baker city route he waited there until he received an answer and after that he talked with dorsey not only about that matter but in that conversation dorsey said according to moore that it took a good deal of money to keep up their influence in the department when i asked him when that conversation was he said two or three days after the first conversation according to the evidence in this case stephen w dorsey left this city on the twelfth of july this man moore arrived on the eleventh and he says two or three days after his arrival dorsey said it took money to keep up their influence here when he swears that dorsey told him that dorsey was in the city of oberlin ohio recollect these things whoever tells stories of this character should have a most excellent memory now there is another thing when did miner get back 
he got back by the twenty fourth of july because on the twenty fourth of july he settled with moore and i believe then moore went west again now remember there was a contract made as moore swears he has not got it nobody sees it he says there was a contract made by which he had a fourth interest in something he got back here i believe some time in november and on the twentieth november he and mine are settled i will now look on page one thousand four hundred thirty for that settlement i want you to see how everything was situated at that time i find on page one thousand four hundred thirty that mr minor settled for everybody with mr a w moore remember the situation moore knew there was a conspiracy all the service was on you see this was november twentieth eighteen eighty vale was in they had a man who was close to brady everything was running in magnificent style mr moore understood that there was a conspiracy what more did he understand that he had the claw of his avarice in the flesh of a united states senator and in the flesh of a second assistant postmaster general hundreds of thousands of dollars were to be made he came back here and settled up and sold out his interest for how much six hundred and eighty-two dollars do you believe that credulity would not believe it nobody believes it that is if the rest of the story is true why did he settle with him for so little he said mr minor told him he hadn't a dollar moore did not reply to him when this conspiracy is completed you will have plenty i can wait no minor said he hadn't anything and so moore settled for six hundred and eighty two dollars then i asked him you had a contract with dorsey did you yes verbally did you ever say anything to dorsey about it no did you ever claim anything from dorsey no did you ever write to him no did you ever say anything to anybody that you had any claim against dorsey no you saw mr moore gentlemen here upon the stand do you think he is the kind of man who would let such a chance slip it is for you to judge in my judgment that is the eternal end of mr moore's testimony we can call him buried we can put the sod over his grave we can raise a stone to the memory of a w moore let him rest in peace or to use the initials only let him r i p that is the end of him if the government wishes to dig up the corpse hereafter let them dig mr kerr i would like mr ingersoll interposing i don't want to hear from you the court you do not know what he is going to say mr ingersoll he may be intending to make a motion that the jury be instructed to find a verdict of not guilty mr kerr as mr merrick will have to answer he simply wants to know the page mr ingersoll if mr merrick wants to know the page he shall have the page and anybody that wishes to answer if counsel had simply asked me for the page without getting up in such a solemn manner i would have told him on page one thousand four hundred and six mr moore says that he went to dorsey and got the money and that then dorsey requested him to telegraph to the dallas and that he did not see dorsey after he got the answer to his dispatch i think for two or three days he reached washington he says about the eleventh on page one thousand three hundred seventy two he speaks of telegraphing to the dallas 
by instructions from Dorsey. Now, gentlemen, I am going to call your attention for a little while to another witness, Mr. Verdell, and in the commencement I need not refresh your minds with regard to the part he has played. I need not in the first instance tell you about his affidavit of June 1881, nor his affidavit of July 13, 1882, nor his pencil memorandum, nor his Chico letter, nor his offer to pack the jury on behalf of the government, nor the signals he had agreed upon, nor the reports he made from day to day, nor the affidavit of September that he made for the government, nor of November, nor of February. All these things you remember and remember perfectly. I will speak of them as I reach them, but I want you to keep in your minds who he is. I need not call any names. Epithets would glance from his reputation like birdshot from the turret of a monitor. The worst thing I can say about him is to call him Mr. Rurdell. All epithets become meaningless in comparison. The worst thing I can say after that would have the taint of flattery in it. You will remember that when Inobaris was speaking to Agrippa about Caesar, he says, Would you praise Caesar? Say Caesar. Go no further. And I can say, if you wish to abuse this witness, say, Mr. Rurdell, go no further. That is as far as I shall go. You will remember that Mr. Rurdell was in the employ of Stephen W. Dorsey and had been for several years. He does not pretend that he was ever badly used. He does not say before you that Mr. Dorsey ever did to him an unkind act, ever said an unkind word. In all the record of the years that he was with him, he finds no page blotted with an unjust act, not one. He has no complaint to make. Under those circumstances, he voluntarily goes to see a man by the name of Clayton, I think an ex-senator from Arkansas, known to him at that time to be an enemy of Stephen W. Dorsey, an enemy of his employer, an enemy of his friend, his friend whose bread this witness had eaten for years, whose roof had protected him, who had trusted and treated him like a human being. Yet he goes to this man Clayton, and he says in substance, I want to sell out my friend to the government. He was not actuated exactly by patriotism, although he says he was. The promptings of virtue may have started him, but after he got started he said to himself, I do not see that it hurts virtue to be rewarded. So he said, I want some pay for this. I want a steamboat route reinstated. I want the Jennings claim allowed. Of course I am disinterested in what I am doing, but I might as well have something, if it is going. What else do you want? The disinterested patriot suggested that he would like to have a clerkship for his father-in-law. Anything else? If you read his letter of July fifth, eighteen 1882, which I will read to you before I get through, you will see that he says, if I had remained with the government, I have every reason to believe that I would have had a good position by this time. So he must have demanded a clerkship for himself, good honest man. At that time he did not know, but swore it afterward, and swore it here upon the stand that Dorsey had never done anything wrong, and yet Rodell was willing to sell him to the government, believing that he, Dorsey, had never done anything wrong. So he went and saw the postmaster general. The postmaster general did not appear to take any great interest in the matter. He turned him over to the attorney general. 
Rodell showed the postmaster general what he had and read him, I believe, or showed him some memoranda. Then he went and saw the attorney general. The postmaster general did not seem to give him encouragement. Then when Rodell went to see McVeigh, he took with him a letter book. I do not know but more than one, but we will say a letter book. Now what was in that letter book? And gentlemen, the only way to find whether a man tells the truth is to take all the circumstances into consideration. What did he want to do? What was his object? And what were the means at his command? For instance, it is said that a man left his house with the intention of murdering another, and that he had on his table a loaded revolver, and also had on his table a small walking stick, and he took with him the walking stick. You would say that he did not intend to commit the murder, that if he had so intended he would have taken the deadly weapon. In other words, you must believe that men, acting for the accomplishment of a certain object, use the natural means within their power. Now, what did he have in that letter-book? He swears now that in that letter-book there was a copy of a letter from Stephen W. Dorsey to James W. Bosler, that the original letter was written by Stephen W. Dorsey. That press copy, of course, would show that the original letter was in the handwriting of S.W. Dorsey. What does he swear was in that letter? He swears that Dorsey made a proposition to Bosler to go into the business, told him the profits, and told him that he had to give 33 and one-third percent to T.J.B., that he had already paid him, I think, $20,000, and had more to pay him. According to the testimony of Mr. Burdell, that was in the letter book that he took to McVeigh. Now recollect that. Why did he not show it? He had forgotten it. He showed him what he had. Recollect now that he had a tabular statement. I think the letter showed so much money to T.J.B., and the tabular statement, 33 and one-third percent to T.J.B. He had that tabular statement, and that was in Dorsey's handwriting. He says he had it. Well, after that, the attorney general must have told him, that is not enough. I want some more. Well, Burdell says, I can let you have something more. What more can you let us have? Well, then he told him about the red books. I do not know that he said they were red, but he told them about the books, and those books were in New York, and he would go over there and get them, that he was going to steal them. He says he went over to get them, and afterwards admitted, I believe, that lie was stealing them. Now, you must remember the position Murdell was in. He had been to Clayton, to the Postmaster General, in company with Mr. Woodward, and to the Attorney General, in company with Mr. Woodward, and yet there was not enough. Well, it was all he had. What more could he do? He suddenly found himself caught in his own trap. He had furnished enough to trouble him, but not enough to convict Dorsey, and not enough to be promised immunity. Now, what had he to do? He did exactly as he did with Mr. Woodward in September, when he made that affidavit, and when Woodward said it was not enough. He said, Very well, I will make another the same as he did when he made the affidavit of seventy pages in November and found it was a little weak. He made another, and he would have made them right along. He had a factory running day and night. Now he tells you that while he was talking with McVeigh, just toward the last of the conversation, the idea flashed into his brain that he might save Dorsey, too. Don't you remember that testimony? And as quick as he thought of that, he agreed to go to New York and steal the books. 
the very last thing that mcveigh said to him according to mcveigh's testimony and i believe according to his own was to be sure and get the books that they were all important so he went as he claims now did it occur to him that he would save dorsey in that way did he think of saving dorsey by going and getting those books that was the last thing and he was going to get the books to be used as evidence against dorsey in a few days he started for new york and the question arises why did Rodell go to new york at all why did he want to see that the books were in new york why did he pretend that he had any more evidence unless he had it you see you have got to get at the philosophy of this man you have got to find what actuated him and although in many respects he is abnormal unnatural monstrous and morally deformed still it may be that we can find the philosophy upon which he acted why did he say he was going to new york because the attorney-general told him he must have told him that the evidence he then had was not sufficient burdell could not break down right there and say that is all i have got that would give up the fight that would tell him that he had endeavored to sell out his friend and nobody would buy the evidence that would tell him that he had tried this and had failed that he had simply succeeded in showing his own treachery without involving his friend he could not stop there you must recollect the evidence he had and the evidence he wanted let us see what he had mr bliss says why did he say the books were in new york why did he not say they were in washington that would not have given him time gentlemen he would have been told go and get them then he could not have produced them consequently he put them in the possession of somebody else so that if he failed to get them then he could say that the other man destroyed them or had hid them he could have said i have done my best they did exist but they have been destroyed or they have been hidden or they have been put out of the way he wanted time and knowing that no such books existed he could not say i have them in washington because then he could give no excuse for their non-production he must state it in such a way that he could reasonably fail that is to say that he could give a reason for his failure he could not say i have them in my house because then he would have been told to go get them so he put them in the possession of another man so that failing to get them as fail he must he could give a reasonable excuse for the failure why did he go to new york i will tell you what my philosophy is he found the government did not wish to purchase the evidence he had he found that in the judgment of the expert of the department of justice it was not sufficient the next thing was to retrace his steps he did not want to jump off of one boat into the sea and find no other boat to rescue him he said i have been too hasty i will go to new york why to find out whether dorsey had ever heard of this or not that is what he went there for the inferior man always imagined that the superior knows what he is doing and knows what he has done he found that he was about to fail with the government and then the important question to him was has dorsey found out about this can i go back to dorsey or must i go on and be cast away by him and be refused by the government now let me call another thing to your minds i will come to it again but it forces itself upon me at this place and it seems to me it ought to be absolutely conclusive 
Rodell swears that on the day after he went to McVeigh with that letter book, in looking it over he found the press copy of the original letter that Dorsey wrote to Bosler on the 13th of July, 1879. He says that the next day he found that copy in that copy book. Why did he not steal the book? Conscientious scruples, gentlemen. You see that he was going to New York to steal another. Why not steal the one that he already had possession of? And how much better that book would have been than the other that he was going to get? This was a copy of a letter in Dorsey's handwriting in which he admitted that he had paid $20,000 to T.J.B. and was going to pay him some more, while that book in New York was not in Dorsey's handwriting, admitted for the sake of argument that there was such a book, but it was in the handwriting of Donnelly or Rodell, see? And right there he had the evidence, absolutely conclusive, in the handwriting of S.W. Dorsey himself, and he did not even keep it. He did not even steal it, but he gave it back and went to New York to steal a book that Dorsey did not write. He threw away the primary evidence to get secondary evidence. He threw away that which would have convicted Dorsey beyond a doubt, which would have made him a welcome recruit to the government. He threw that away and went to New York to get another, a line of which Dorsey never wrote. And then he would have to establish, after he got the book, that William Smith stood for Thomas J. Brady. He would have to prove, after they got that book, that John Smith or Samuel Jones stood for Turner. Now, gentlemen, do you believe that that man, with his ideas of honor and with the kind of conscience he has in his bosom, with a copy of a letter in Dorsey's handwriting in his possession, admitting that Dorsey gave $20,000 to T.J.B., would give that up and then go to the city of New York to steal a book not in Dorsey's handwriting, and that did not prove that Dorsey ever paid a cent to Thomas J. Brady, in which there was one charge to William Smith, and that would have to be eked out by the testimony of Burdell himself when he had right there in his own grasp and clutch the press copy of the original letter written by Dorsey himself? Do you believe it? There is not a man on the jury believes it. There is not a lawyer prosecuting this case which believes it. What else did he have? He had a letter that he himself, as he claims, wrote to Bosler on the 22nd of May, 1880, after he, Rodell, had been summoned to appear before a committee of Congress. He had, he says, those three sheets. What else did he have the morning after he was talking to McVeigh? He had the tabular statement in the handwriting of Stephen W. Dorsey, and over the Brady column, TJB 33 and one-third percent. What more did that man have? He had the balance sheets made out, as he swears, by Donnelly, of those books. Were the balance sheets just as good as the books? Now just think what he had according to his own testimony. A copy of the original letter written by Dorsey to Bosler in which he admitted his guilt. A copy of the tabular statement written by Dorsey in which he puts down 33 and one-third percent to T.J.B. What more? A copy of the letter that he had written to Bosler on the 22nd of May, 1880. He had all that, and he must have had this memorandum, though I will show you that he had not, and I think I will show you when he made it. And yet he was going to New York to get some more evidence? 
he was going to steal another book in new york that would simply create a suspicion while he gave up a book that was absolute certainty that is the theory but they say oh he did not do that quite what did he do he went out and had that copied he swears that he had copied that letter of may thirteenth eighteen seventy nine that Dorsey wrote to Bosler, in which he admitted that he gave $20,000 to Brady. Now, a copy would not show in whose handwriting the letterpress copy was, would it? That is a very important point. Who copied it? I think he said Miss Nettie L. White copied it. We never hear of Miss Nettie L. White again, though. These gentlemen admit that you are not to believe Mr. Verdell on any point that is not corroborated and when he swears that miss nettie l white copied the letter you are not bound to believe that there was such a letter unless they bring miss nettie white or account for her absence they did not bring her that is an extremely important point in their case infinitely more important than whether the red books ever existed did dorsey write a letter to bosler in which he admitted his guilt this man says that he had complete and perfect evidence in his own hand that he gave that up, that he had that copied by Miss White, and they did not bring Miss White. Certainly he has no scruples about tearing it out. He says he tore out his letter to Bosler of the 22nd of May, 1880. He had no scruples about that. He did not refuse to keep the book because it touched his honor, because in a day or two he was going to steal another, not half as good as that one, not one-tenth part as good. Just think, he gave up evidence that was absolute and complete and went to steal evidence that was secondary and of the poorest character. You do not believe it. He would have kept that book if he had kept any. If he was going to steal any evidence and had the best, he would have kept it. The trouble was that there was no such letter in that book. There was his letter of May twenty-second, 1880. No doubt about that. And that man tore it out, and then he made up one in his own mind and had it of that date that is all so he went to new york and swears that he went right up to the albemarle hotel that it was early in the morning that dorsey was not then up and that he had a conversation with dorsey in which dorsey charged him with having had something to do with the government with having gone over to the government dorsey had heard that there was something going on about that time and i suppose he asked mr Rurdell about it Rodell denied it, said there was no truth in it, that nothing of the kind, character, or sort had ever happened. Now let us just see whether I can demonstrate to you that Rodell, in the conversation that he had with Dorsey at the Albemarle Hotel, denied that he had gone over to the government, or that he had done anything that was not perfectly honest, straightforward, and upright. I refer to it now, although I may come to it again. And gentlemen, I am sorry for you. I pity every one of you that you have to hear all that has to be said in this case. But you must put yourselves for the moment in our places. You must remember that these defendants have borne this agony, have been roofed and surrounded with disorder for two years. You must remember that the agents of the government have pursued them. They have watched over them and spied them day and night. You must remember that they have been slandered for years in the public press. Although the tone of the public press is now changing, and changing in such a marked degree that one of the attorneys here, for the prosecution, claimed that we had bought up the correspondence. When you take into consideration what my clients have suffered, 
the position they are now in, fighting this great and powerful government, I know you will excuse us for inflicting upon you every thought and every argument that we think may be for our defense. I am doing for my clients what I would do for you, or any of you, if you were defendants, and I am doing for them what I would want them to do for me, were I a defendant and they my counsel. This ends chapter 4, part 4 of 24.